This podcast was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. Never get tired of being Beatles. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take twelve. Hey, what? Oh, Can we just have a little less guitar in here for us? Oh, no way. That John finally got just after that, and we both of us do what we want to do, do what we want to do. If you think it was complicated, you don't scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. The podcast website is romicast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T, romicast.com. You can find out more information about me, and you can find each and every episode that we've done so far. And also, if you see fit, you can make a donation to support keeping the show commercial-free. I am trying to make a living as a content creator in a world that doesn't like to pay for content. So any donation is much appreciated. Just click on the donate button on the website. And also, if you don't mind, and if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. That really does make a difference. And thanks for that in advance. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram. That's a great place to interact, ask any questions you want, make any comments you want. The handle on both is the underscore RomyCast, the underscore RomyCast on both Twitter and Instagram. There is a Facebook group page if you'd like to join. Do a search on Facebook for The Walrus Was Paul Podcast. Ask to join and I will sort that out. My guests today are the multi-talented musical duo Fraser Daly, Alec Fraser, and Mike Daly. They are regulars on the Toronto live music scene, or rather they will be again once artists can get back to performing live. I've seen them more times than I could count, and they are both great players and entertainers. But to quote John Lennon in Help, there's more here than meets the eye. All right, not my best John Lennon, but I gave it a, I gave it a shot. Uh, Alec is an in-demand bass session player and producer, and notably, he played with and produced one of the greatest blues guitarists that Canada has ever produced, the late Jeff Healy. Mike Daly is actually Dr. Mike Daly, having achieved a PhD in music, and he specializes in the history of popular music. He lectures in person, but currently online, on many musical subjects. He currently has some fantastic online lectures available at his website. Of note, the 60s in 60 songs, classic albums, volumes 1 to 5, 
and The Beatles and Their World. I've listened to that one. Really great background on the Beatles, the Beatles and their world. You can find all of those lectures and more at Mike's website, MikeDailyMusic.com. And you can also find information on the Fraser Daily Band, including their three albums. You can give a listen, purchase, download at FraserDaily.com. That's FraserDaily.com. So, Alec Fraser and Mike Daly, producer, lecturer, musicians and today good old beatles fans alec mike thanks so much for your time and stopping by to talk about the beatles great to be here paul yeah great to be here paul thanks uh so start at the beginning and uh mike why don't you go first and then alec what are your earliest memories of the beatles in your life the early my earliest memory of the beatles is from mad magazine and so when i was about eight or nine years old i started to collect mad magazines and i really liked the old ones so for that for me that was mad magazines from the 60s early 70s because this is about 76 77 and there would periodically be parodies of the beatles uh, or representation i remember one where they where they aged them they took four pictures and they aged them to what and it, they wrote a bio of them in old age it's a fascinating i'd love, love to find it someday anyway it was through mad magazine and then um i had a friend who was older who started going crazy on the beatles and he his name was kevin and he got me into it he had some of the albums and so then i i didn't have any albums my parents had an arthur fiedler boston pops album of uh orchestral renditions of beatles and i i listened to it because i didn't have a beatles record and you know i didn't really i don't think i had an allowance or anything i was i was like 11 so I had to figure out how to get these things. So I, you know, negotiated an, an allowance with my parents so I could buy albums. And I started buying the albums uh, one at a time. And each album I would, would just get me farther in. So I had, you know, a bunch of albums within a, within a year because I was constantly getting them. And um, so then I was a complete Beatles. There was a point where I wouldn't listen to any other music when I was about 12. And then I got into other music as well. But there was a point where I would refuse to listen to anything but the Beatles. It was a bit nuts. Now, Alec, you lived the Beatles, did you not? Uh, your background, your hometown, tell me about that. Well, I was uh, born in Glasgow. and uh, I stayed there until I was uh, 11 years old. And um, so I, I guess you could say I was there when before America got a hold of the Beatles, but... But I had a similar uh, thing with, that Mike said. Um, older, I had older older cousins. They were older by about a couple of years, and they brought over at some time in '63. I can't remember, but they brought over uh, the '45s from "Please Please Me," and um, and uh, you know, and then we, we'd listen to them on the record player, and, and we all kind of got hooked on you know um, the songs. Uh, Love Me Do, I remember being a really big one, because I, I mean, I was kind of in a, I was a sort of a country and western, old country and western fan through my family, who were all crazy about it. Uh, I had seven uncles that were in the uh, Merchant Navy, and he would bring, bring back all the records from the, the States, so 
I, you know, my education was all on that side of things. Mm -hmm. But when I heard the Beatles, it was all of a sudden I had an identity for my own age group. That's that's what made it different. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, my uncles and my my aunts and my family were. I was following. It was like, wow, I've got my own sound now. My cousins like it. I really like those guys and. And, uh, you know, then I went further. Uh, I started my own band in school. It was an acapella band, except for the drummer. He had a couple of rulers in his hands. You know, he was <laughs> pretending the drum to be Gringo. And we were called, uh, funnily enough, the Beatles. <laughs> I, mean, I just, love that story. We, we I love that it. you started a band and you called it the Beatles. Yeah, I know. It's just like, you know, this is what you do, I guess, when you're seven. But, uh, you know, just like, I didn't, wasn't thinking about copyright laws or anything like that. You know, we, just, we just go from classroom to classroom and sing all these songs. And we knew all the songs, all the lyrics, but. We didn't have any instruments, even though I did play a little bit of guitar there. I just started, but I wasn't anywhere near good enough to play what those guys are playing. Like yeah. The Beatles stuff is fairly advanced. Yeah. And uh, so uh, we make the noises of the of the songs with our with our mouths, like <laughs> and then sing in between. Nice. It was actually a lot of fun. So uh, you, you, yeah, so that was my introduction. Anyway, so. You guys have chosen "Please Please Me" as the album you want to go through track by track. How come? Well, I wanted to do this one with Alec because uh, for me, this this album is. I, I love all the Beatles albums, and I know a lot of songs off a bunch of them. And at our gig at the Intersteer, I'd call songs and. I don't know. I don't always know if Alec knows them. And I found that when I called songs from this album, Alec no, always knows, or he'll always say, uh, "I'm not sure." And then I start, and he instantly locks into it, backup vocals, all the chords right. So, so this album, I I think um, we haven't actually talked about our experience of this album before, Alec and I. But I imagine that he heard it at a critical time and listened to it a lot. And really, the way that we did with albums in those days, that we would get a new album and we'd listen to it like a hundred times in a row, which we never do anymore. I can't even bring myself to do it anymore. And I used to listen to music that way. I've started doing it again, actually. But I, it's I had 45s. That's what we had. Like, And I didn't actually own them. They were My cousins would bring them and... And uh, and then every it was played on the radio just constantly. So and it was the and we'd sing them. So you know I was getting enough of it. The album thing didn't come along in pop music to me to, to a lot later. You know, so, but you when did you get hold of this album? Because you know all the album cuts. Well, they were weren't they all singles? I mean, you'd hear no. them on the radio. No, nope. like, well, the A and B sides of some of them. I mean, not all, some of them are, but not all of them. I mean. Like a taste of honey, you know that one, and yeah, I heard that on the radio. Plus, you were on top of the pops all the time too. All right? of the songs, like misery, you know all of them. Yeah, misery. I I sang a lot. We sang it with a different word altogether, but you don't want to hear that. Um, <laughs> well, I, a taste of honey, definitely. There's a place. Yeah, you know, was that know, a single? Showed, of course, right. I mean, yeah. that, that was played to death on the radio. There were so many hits on this album. Yeah, well, yeah. What, what we, had, we also had, uh, we had pirate radio in Scotland. Uh, I, I, there was no, 
there was no real big station happening there. It was Radio Luxembourg and and Radio Scotland. And Radio Scotland was outside the uh, 300 mile limit that they had back then. And they just played everything. And we had it on all the time, way more than the television back then. It was, did they was, ever? Did they ever play entire albums? Pirate Radio. Um, you know what? I can't. I can't remember that. I mean, I. It's kind of a while ago for me, but uh, but I just know that all everybody knew the songs. I mean, there was actually a Beatle mania in Britain long before there was in America, right? Because I think it wasn't at the, the Sullivan Show over here. I wasn't here then, so yeah, it was a good. Was the, the, Britain was a good year ahead of it, if not more. The UK was, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. They were, oh, for sure. Sixty three was the year of uh, British Beatlemania, yeah. and then sixty four is the year of World Beatlemania. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that makes that makes sense. I didn't get here till sixty seven. So, and by the time I got here, I was kind of, uh, I can remember <laughs> getting. I was, I guess, Strawberry Fields Forever was out just before I left. So I guess that came out in early 67 or late 66. Early. I don't really know. January. January. Yeah, that makes sense. And my father had already been in um, in Canada. He came a year ahead to get a job and all that stuff. And so we were living with my grandmother and she'd have the radio on all the time. And when I first heard that, I didn't know what I was listening to. It just seemed so strange. Like uh, compared to all of the you know, the, the more of a boy bandish sort of thing that was going on when we were kids. Remember, I used to joke and say it's children's music, but uh, <laughs> the early Beatles, but in a way, it kind of was. It was geared to a, a younger generation. Right? And then all of a sudden, you, you know, the, the wrap around the whole thing was like, oh, they're into drugs now. And oh, John Lennon, and he's into drugs. And it was like, you know, I didn't know anything about drugs then. It was like, oh, Maybe I don't like them as much now, you know? It was funny. Even though I love that song and I love playing it with you, um, it did have a effect on me. Uh, let me just give you some context here just to, to answer, and then we can, we'll can we push on with the cuts. But uh, to, to your point, Mike, and as well you, Alec, Please Please Me was the Beatles' first studio album release, and it was released on March 22nd, 63, in the U.K., uh, Please Please Me was never released in North America per se. It came out in Canada almost a year later, Feb 3rd, 1964, on a Capital Canada compiled album, which was called Twist and Shout. And that album had 12 of the 14 cuts from the British release of Please Please Me, but it dropped I Saw Her Standing There and Misery in favor of From Me to You and She Loves You, two British number one singles. In the U.S., in January of 64, most of the tracks appeared on the VJ Records release introducing the Beatles, and these same tracks were re-released by Capital USA after they acquired the rights from VJ after their licensing agreement had expired. Uh, the re-release was an album called The Early Beatles. That came out in March of 65. So Please Please Me hit number one in the UK charts in May of 63, was the number one record in the UK for 30 weeks. It was in the UK top 10 for 62 weeks. No pop group had ever achieved that kind of staying power in the British charts. Of the 14 tracks on the record, eight are Lennon-McCartney originals, six are covers. 
The album ranks 10th in total sales among the original 13 British releases with an estimated 5.9 million physical albums sold just ahead of With the Beatles and quite a ways behind A Hard Day's Night. Twist and Shout is the most streamed song from this album on Spotify, followed by Love Me Do. Uh, As of 2017, over 103 million streams of songs from Please Please Me on Spotify. So here's some context and then we'll dive into it. The Beatles were jobbing musicians in 1963. You guys can appreciate that. That's how you make your living. They played shows and tried to sell records. They'd failed in their first attempt to secure a record deal when a recording session audition with DACA in January of 62 proved fruitless. DECA turned them down. On June 6, 1962, the Beatles, fresh off of a seven-week residency at the Star Club in Hamburg, headed into EMI Studios for a recording tryout with EMI Parlophone. Uh, in a deal brokered by Brian Epstein with Parlophone's chief producer, George Martin. They recorded a cover of Besame Mucho and three originals, Love Me Do, P.S. I Love You, and Ask Me Why. Martin heard enough of something he liked to have the Beatles back for an actual proper session to record a single and a B-side on September 4th, 62. This time, uh, Pete Best had been sacked and wasn't there. Pete Best, the original drummer in the Beatles. Ringo came along. Uh, They recorded How Do You Do It, written by Mitch Murray and Barry Mason, and Love Me Do with Ringo on drums. Then on September 11th, a week later, George Martin had the band back into the studio to have another run at Love Me Do, which he didn't feel was quite right. They also recorded P.S. I Love You and an early version of Please Please Me. What Martin didn't feel was quite right from an earlier session was Ringo's drumming. So for this session, he had a session guy in, a gentleman by the name of Andy White. He played the drums and Ringo Dooley played maracas on P.S. I Love You and tambourine on Love Me Me do. Those recordings came out in October of 62, hit number 17 in the charts. We moved to November and it saw a proper attempt at Please Please Me. After Take 18, George Martin famously said to the boys in the studio floor over the intercom, you've just made your first number one. And he was proven correct. The single released on January 11th, 63, rocketed up the charts or climbed up rapidly, might be more accurate. That brings us to Monday, the 11th of February, 1963. Parlophone is trying to ride the popularity of successful singles and they wanted to get a record out. So the Beatles were brought in to record 10 tracks to go with the four already recorded tracks. They were tired. They played shows on 11 of the previous 12 days. John Lennon had a terrible cold, but there was work to be done. There were three sessions that day. From 10 in the morning until 1, they got a couple of songs done. Took a break until 2.30. From 2.30 until 6, they worked on another six tracks. Another break. Back from 7.30 until 10.45, work on six tracks. To quote the Dean of Beatles writers, Mark Lewison, There can scarcely have been 585 more productive minutes in the history of recorded music. For in that small space of time, the Beatles recorded all 10 new songs for their first long player. Mike and Alec, from the perspective of working musicians, what say you about that day? Paul, you mentioned that the Beatles were a working band. And, you know, when they went into the recording studio on that on that particular day, it was not their first session, but when they went into that 
they had been playing almost every night since the fall of 1960. So they were, according to Mark Lewison's estimation, they were the most experienced rock and roll band in history already, just in terms of pure gig hours. So they had the ability, and they had done those long sessions in Hamburg, you know, those six and eight hour uh, playing times, playing calls. I mean, we would we would never play from six or like to six or eight hours unless the money was stupid. <laughs> I think you would yeah. agree with that, Alec. Oh yeah, definitely. Although I did play the Young Station Tavern on. Uh, <laughs> on Young Street, and that was like I think it was six half-hour sets. I felt like a oh. yo-yo, but that was a long night. But uh, that was—you're right, though. It was rare, and we would, you know, you were just—I guess they were just, you know, trying to make money and to make a living, yeah. right? Well, and what had happened when they had uh, brought Brian Epstein on was he brought their fees up from about ten pounds a night to uh, fifty, and then very quickly after the release of Love Me Do, a hundred pounds a night. And so they were working as much as possible and just crisscrossing England. Um, and by the way, one of these things that they had done in the spring of 1960 is the Johnny Gentle Tour. Do you guys know the Johnny Gentle Tour? No. Of Scotland in uh, May 1960? No, I don't know much about that. I was four. Well, I want to. I, I wanted to look into it because of you being Scottish, Alec, and yeah. so I, I looked up where they actually played in Scotland. So okay. the, the story behind this is that they um, they've passed an audition to back up a singer, a sort of teen idol guy named Johnny Gentle, on a seven night tour or eight day tour of Scotland. Really? And so they, they, this was their first professional gig. Paul quit his job. You know, they went. Stu Sutcliffe was playing bass in the band, and right. they had a, dr a drummer named Thomas Moore. Anyway, I wanted to ask Alec if he knows any of these places. Aloha? Where? Aloha? Aloha? It's near Edinburgh, apparently. No, no, not really. I, I, never, I never left Glasgow as a kid. We were broke. <laughs> Did you ever go to Inverness? Oh, definitely. Well, that's played, crazy country. I've been there many times, but that's, that's in later. Inverness. They played in a place called Fraserburg. Yeah, I know Fraserburg as well. Are you sure? Keith? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Keith? Do you know Keith? Keith? Keith. Keith Richards? Or Keith yeah, I like Keith. <laughs> yeah, like Keith Richards. Yeah. Uh, well, Keith is is a famous name, but I don't remember the place or anything. Like, I didn't go back until I was 18 years old. I moved back there again. So that's when I got to see a lot of Scotland because I was playing in bands and, and touring. So, but I never, I never came across, across Keith though, but I never asked many times. I'll anyway, be more. Anyway, most of the gigs were around Aberdeen and it, you know, it was important first, uh, experience for them as far as being yeah. a professional band. They probably drank a lot. <laughs> oh, they did. <laughs> they did. I've never crazy. heard of Johnny Gentle. Well, well, yeah. and, and to the point, guys, of, of you know working musicians, which is the thing I know you were emphasizing, Mike. Yeah, uh, but yeah. right after the one day session, so they come. They, they've been playing pretty much every day. They crash in all day session to record all those songs. 
right back out and they played for the next 21 days straight before coming back to EMI on March 5th for another recording session. So, I mean, they went on to be the greatest rock and roll band in, in history, but man, those guys work like dogs to get yeah, there. Yeah, there's no magic in it. It's it's just that they were they were disciplined. They were they were the tightest band going at the top of their game. And they and they had an encyclopedic knowledge of popular music. Yeah, at at the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and before that time, and they had a historical view of pop music. They played songs from the 1920s in their set at that time. So let's start her off. We're going to go old school, guys. I'm going to take the vinyl out of the jacket, put it on the turntable here, and it is side one, cut one. I saw her standing there. One, two, three, five. like that on a on a, re- a record before and with it being up you know like an up song it, and the kids just loved it i mean everybody was singing and we even changed the words to i sawed her standing there as if you had a song <laughs> and it, that's the last reason <laughs> but uh yeah the uh the uh that song was a big one um I, you know, I don't know much about the session, although I did hear a bunch of, uh, of bootleg stuff from that session with all the outtakes and second versions. One time somebody had it back in the 90s and uh, it was all live. Like it sounded incredible. They were like such a good band. You know, live. Mike? Yeah, it's it, the, the whole thing is live off the floor. I found out that only the only overdub actually done by the Beatles was A Taste of Honey. They did a vocal overdub. And you listen to that song on the album, it sounds completely different from all the other songs because it's the first one where, they, where John and Paul actually overdub themselves over Paul's voice. But everything was live off the floor. To, it's two tracks, so they had one track for overdubs. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that one, two, three, four. I was really listening to that today because I was thinking that was that was all, all all these people, that was their introduction, right? You put the needle on, one, two, three, four, and you listen to it, and it's Paul, and he's doing it in a Liverpudlian accent. And Paul didn't speak with a Liverpudlian accent. His mother had forced him to learn a more... Queen's English kind of accent and wouldn't let him use his Liverpudlian accent. He's signaling, I think, in the in the count off, he's signaling that this is British rock and roll. Because he's doing it in his accent. He's not he's not affecting an American accent for that spoken. It's very common to do that uh, over there. Like there's nothing worse than like I was saying, the country and western accent came out of Scotland where they're they try to sing with American accents, and it's right. just ridiculous, you know. Yeah, you're cheating hard. <laughs> uh, you know, anyway, I know you're right about that. They were really proud of who they 
their their heritage and everything. Well, yeah. usually these count-ins were edited off the final audio mix, but uh, right there you see George Martin uh, putting himself, you know, laying a marker down because Martin in in looked back and said he wanted to create the effect that the album was a live performance because he had, uh, I'm quoting him here, I've been up to the cavern and I'd seen what they could do. I knew their repertoire and I said, let's record every song you've got, come down to the studios and we'll just whistle through them in a day. I want it to sound live. So he he grabbed that. The one, two, three, four count was taken from take nine and edited on to the beginning of take what? one. Yeah. I uh, didn't know that. He did that. Uh, they ran through nine takes, three of which were complete and decided that take one, as you guys would know being musicians, you often get it in the first take and that was the magic one. So they lifted off the one, two, three, four and he... he edited it on to the front of take one uh and there you go and here's a good one mike being the music historian guy i'd like to get your opinion on this richard williams an esteemed uh music writer suggested that the dramatic introduction to their debut was just as stirring as elvis presley's well it's one for the money two for the show Mm -hmm. which was on his opening track blue suede shoes for his debut album seven years earlier is it in that league yeah, I think so because they they are both they're both signals in the as I said it's like a signal to to their that they are British that they are rock and roll because of the way that Paul sings four you know one two three four it a lot of people thought it was the F word oh. and I I even saw serious people having this thing how did they get away with that how did they get away with him saying. You know, it was one of those folk rock folklore things that would circulate, you know. And, um, but, you know, you listen to Elvis doing Blue Suede Shoes. Well, that signals, that pitch slide p- signals something. Mm-hmm. It signals that he's Southern because he's doing right. a scoop. Uh, yes. And so it's it's like a brand marker. And and I think it's, yeah, I think they're, it's very much the same thing. Just like the snare crack at the beginning of Like a Rolling Stone. Uh, the bass riff, do you recognize it? It's 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 a direct lift of Chuck Berry's I'm Talking About You. Does that ring any bells for you? Well, you know what? I know that riff. It was really different. I didn't know it came from that. And I, you know, I've listened to a lot of Chuck Berry. You know, I, I got I think probably because I had, you know, was listening on small record players and you couldn't really hear the bass for for many years until I bought those plastic pumpkins that they sold at the Halloween and I put speakers in and all of a sudden I'm like, what the that? Uh, yeah, the, um, uh, the, I don't, I don't recognize it, but I do know how to play it. I think that's maybe a little more valuable. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a mostly McCartney write. Uh, he says he wrote it with John in the front parlor of his house uh, in 20 Fourthland Road. Uh, yeah. We uh, took the day off school, wrote it on guitars, a uh, little bit of piano that he had there. So it was a, a Lennon McCartney, or as, as they were called on this album, McCartney Lennon was the credit on, oh, really? on the original album. Yeah. Right. I There's a great too. There's a great um, picture of that Fourthland Road songwriting session uh, taken by Mike McCartney, Paul's brother, of, um, and it's really the only photo of its type where you see John and Paul writing together. The lyrics of I Saw Her Standing There are on the floor, and John's got his glasses on, and Paul's playing guitar left-handed. John's right behind him. They're like bookends, and they are both looking down at this lyric sheet, playing through it and singing it. 
It's a great picture. So on to uh, cut number two. Cut number two inside one, a song called Misery. The world is treating me bad. Misery. I'm the kind of guy who never used to cry. Originally written for Helen Shapiro, uh, who at the time was a was a big, big, successful female singer in the UK. Uh, it has a bit of a country and western feel to it, no? For sure. Yeah. I think of this. I think of this one too as this is one of those songs that definitely was a equal co-write of John and Paul. Because yeah. you can tell by the, by the fact that they sing the whole thing in unison that they wrote it together. I think that a lot of that country and Western influence that comes in for them was the same because Liverpool was a port just like Glasgow. And, and, and that is that a lot of the, uh, how they got their music was from people who were coming from the States, right? By the, the sailors and stuff. So um, that, that music was pretty popular back then. Um, and, and I can see it being popular in, in Liverpool as well. And it, it must have influenced their writing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they knew all the guys, right? Well, and Ringo was a big country music fan, and John's George, first, what's that? George as well with his Chet Atkins. Chet Atkins, yeah, absolutely. Playing. John's first memory of seeing a guitar in Liverpool was a guy in a complete cowboy outfit, just a Liverpool cowboy, you know, right. with the with the whole thing with the the hat and the spurs and the the whole thing playing a guitar. Yeah. And, you know, he said there were guys like that all the time who would be who would be in a full cowboy getup in the middle of Liverpool. My dad did that. Yeah. He was, dad the, was the Scottish, Scottish cowboy. cowboy right? so. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was written for Shapiro because she was uh, she was going to Nashville to record a country and Western record. But her manager actually rejected the song. Uh, and she said years later she she wasn't aware of that. She'd never seen it. And it ended up being recorded by a guy named Kenny Lynch. Uh, and I mean, here's Small World. So Kenny Lynch records this song in 1963. He becomes the first ever artist to cover a Lennon McCartney song, had a minor hit with it. A decade later in 1973, he appeared on the cover of Band on the Run, the McCartney album. He's, oh, yeah. <laughs> he's one of the, that's right. He's one of the Band on the Run up against the wall. So, uh, man, little- you guys are good. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I knew I was talking to the master today, so I, I had to, I had to, really, I had to really do my homework. And yeah. you know, after after they around the time that this album came out, they were on tour with Helen Shapiro. In uh, I feel like that's March or April '63. So I wonder if it ever came up in conversation that that they were supposed to be supplying this song to her, and you know, and she she says she never heard about it. It's kind of the timing is weird. But Lewison hasn't hasn't done 1963 yet, so I don't know what the truth is. Well, I, I loved it for that that same reason that it had a bit of a country thing too. But there was also a piece in it that was we always thought was a bit of a Sean Connery reference, and Mike and I sometimes make each other laugh <laughs> when it gets to that line. Send her back to me. We sing it. Send her back to me, cause everyone can see. And it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the audience hasn't a clue, but uh, about, yep. I mean, it's an inside joke. We've but done, we've done nights where we where we do every ass as a show. 
<laughs> I feel like we've had some of those qu- sort of quieter nights where we, ju- where we just go full Sean Connery for a set. And to those of you good listeners, uh, if you happen to be in the Toronto <clears throat> area, uh, take a look at, on their websites and see whether Alec and Mike are playing. Fraser Daly is the name of the band. You will not have a, a better night out. It's a it, these guys are great. Uh, that's uh, uh, that's how I met them. Going and listening to them at a, a local watering hole. So it's a lot of fun, and they're great players as well. Now, Alec also a producer uh, in in one of your many jobbing jobs. And so I wanted to ask you about this: whether there's a a technique like this that's still done. This was the again George Martin putting his marker down as as a. The, the producer he was no more recordings back then were done at 15 inches per second on a tape this one was done at 30 inches per second the reason that was done was so that george martin could overdub a piano part later and this became one of his favorite recording techniques his so-called wound up piano so that was a piano recorded at half speed with guitar but played an octave lower so then the technique combining the different instruments played with the tape slowed up or down and created new tones. So on Misery, it sort of fattens up the opening guitar chords and in the middle eight. Do you do you still do things like that? Yeah, well, okay, so um, I I did stuff like that when I was a kid, but um, but I, when I'm t- with Real to Reels and stuff, but I never actually owned one that went to 30 IPS, but... Um, but I know that in Nashville, they, they were using fast tape, uh, because it gave you, uh, it was more for the sound. It gave you much more fidelity, uh, higher end. And if you want to now, even the tape plugins that they have and Pro Tools or, or any, anything else, they, any other DAW, they have, uh, uh, you use 50 IPS to thicken up uh, the sound. So in the seventies, that that was the sound of the seventies was two inch tape, fifteen IPS, right? So, um, but in this technique you're talking about, he's doing it for an effect. So, are you saying that he recorded it slower so, so that it would sound sped up, or are you saying he recorded it faster and then when you played it back halfway, it was it was. Uh, Lower, because I, I I'm not really that familiar well, with so, that. So, uh, so from what I can figure out, and and Mike, jump in if you know, because you you probably know your way around a studio better than I would. But they recorded the song, so the the basic tracks at thirty inches per second, right? And then he okay. went back and played and the piano it. part at fifteen inches per second. Yeah. So it gives it an octave lower. An octave lower. So then when you play it back at thirty, it sounded higher. Exactly. But, but it sounds different and... Like more like a harpsichord or something, right? It, like if you listen to the song, you can hear... That doesn't sound like a piano per se. Am I am I right on that? Yeah. And it's the same technique he uses on In My Life. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, exa- it just, oh, yeah, that solo I'm familiar with. Yeah, so that sort of sounds more like a kind of a... Well, a sped up piano, really, if you look at it, but like a spin it or something like that, right? Like, uh, yeah, that's what it sounds like on Misery, too. Like, it yeah. just sounds like a brighter piano. Yeah, I haven't heard Misery in a while. I've uh, we've sang it a lot, but uh, I haven't listened to it. 
Shender back to me. <laughs> Shender back to me. <laughs> All right, let's let's move to cut three, uh, and it's a cover version, a song called Anna, Go to Him, a cover version oh, yeah. of a song originally written by Arthur Alexander, uh, a black southern country soul singer, so there's that country influence again. Uh, and there's a little bit of trivia. The only writer to have songs covered on studio albums by the Beatles, The Stones, song called You Better Move On, and Bob Dylan, a song called Sally Sue Brown. So he got the, the hat trick eventually with those guys. Wow, that's amazing. like the song and I like the I like that syncopated uh, drum beat that uh, Ringo does da, 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 ta, boom, ta, you know that, that kind of thing like, um, and uh, well, Lennon's voice always really appealed to me it had that sort of you know, you know that sort of growly sort of throaty thing in with it as well so I just really like the tune I don't know why completely but I liked it Mike? I've always loved that guitar line that um, that George plays. That sort of um, da, da, da. no, it's like a it's like a. I got it here. Hold on. Oh, perfect. It's like a. That, that sort of thing. It's so yeah. uh, it's so genteel, you know. Yeah. Um, Fairly advanced too, if you think about a pop band at that time, like that. Uh, George, oh, absolutely. Yeah, his guitar playing was just way further ahead than the bands that were happening out of England at the time. I mean, like the Kinks and stuff. I loved the Kinks, but you know, when they when you heard their souls, they 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 really weren't on the level of what of what George had been doing. Not then, anyway. What I love in Anna is the backup vocals, bathed in reverb. You know, yeah. go to him. Uh, Anna. They don't even say "Oh, Anna." They say "Uh, uh, Anna." Right. Uh, Anna. They're barely, they're barely opening their mouths. It's a great moment. Yeah. Me, that song, well, those backups, light reverbs too, right? They're just yeah. wash, oh, yeah. but just a wash in reverb, right? Paul and George. Yeah. Was it a, was it the sound of George Martin? Was it the sound of the of the EMI Studios engineers? Because if you listen to a Kinks record from back around the time the Beatles were recording, or a Stones record, they don't sound as good as no. the Beatles records. Why was that? EMI had the most advanced. Well, no, they U47. had they used. Yeah, I mean they they had the highest quality recording studio in the world, but they weren't the most advanced. The American studios of Atlantic and Motown had more tracks and they were, yeah. they were, they were, uh, EMI, they were conservative. So they were still working in two track when everybody was working in four track, but they, you know, a lot of their equipment in, in that studio at Abbey road was made by EMI, like manufactured designed by, it was proprietary compressors and tape machines. And they really, they were the absolute gold standard of recording. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they, they had, you know, like almost every microphone you see in any photograph of any of the sessions, they're all, the Telefunken, which went on to become the Neumann U-47. It's the most sought-after microphone in the world, right? Yeah. They yeah. were recording orchestras in those studios. They couldn't, yeah. skimp, they couldn't skimp on mics. They had to have the best stuff. And I think George Martin, yeah, he 
you know, he had a lot to do. I mean, I, I mean, it takes a village, right? But it, it you, uh, you know, everybody involved was probably a good reason why. But I can remember him talking about in his book, uh, George's book about um, uh, all you need is ears. Uh, he he talks about how they had to get if they wanted to move a microphone closer to a kick drum when Jeff Emmerich came in as an engineer and stuff and. They they weren't allowed to do that. They had they, they they had these guys with these white lab coats that would come down and sort of uh, well, you, don't you can't do that, you know. So you go, well, uh, we want to do it. We're the Beatles now. We can, uh, we, you know, we can pretty much do what we want. We can buy these microphones ourselves, right? So I guess that was where it ended up. But at first, they were definitely having to play by the rules i think that the sound of please please me is the sound of the beatles making the most of an already existing studio environment right. and they haven't started to transform it yet what a recording studio was yeah on that and, record and sure. then it would take on their image right and they'd have much more their own sound and that sort of thing yeah. but they are stepping into an infrastructure that is well established you know this this the best recording engineers the best producer you know this was you couldn't get better in england mm -hmm. yeah than I what mean, they were working with with george i mean wasn't he doing mostly classical and orchestra and comedy comedy a lot of comedy records yeah <laughs> yep a lot he of did I mean, george george did a lot of comedy records and he's well known for them but he also did a lot of incredible novelty records that used that pushed the boundaries of the studio like you were saying paul with the sped up you know he yeah. was he was making these these records they weren't exactly rock and roll records and whenever he tried to do rock and roll prior to the beatles he kind of flunked but he made a lot of really adventurous uh, and those comedy records too, like he, he, the Peter Sellers, um, the goons. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the best of sellers, that, uh, album, um, yeah. or the sensation, I forget the name of the Peter Sellers album, but they were doing all kinds of sound effects and things like that. And he was, um, you know, incredibly inventive well, as yeah. well as being skilled. And well, the, the, I mean, Harry Seacombe and, and, uh, and Spike Milligan, the other two were pretty inventive too. Oh yeah, they, they had. They didn't have a lot of success with those records. They used to have like a, I mean, they kept making them, and uh, even you know, a number of years later, according to George's book, he he, he talks about every time they the three of them or the four of them got together because they were very close friends too. Mm -hmm. uh, they go, well, here we go again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. This one's going to probably flop as well, but we're going to do it anyway. I mean, I don't think it, I don't, George had much success in the, in the comedy side, but he definitely brought brought a lot to the table. Like, he uh, had a he had a number one hit though with uh, "Goodness Gracious Me," Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren. Do you remember that record? Oh yeah. That was his first number one, I think. Well, there you go. Well, that's why he knew what a number one was then. Exactly. This <laughs> is your first number one. So let's uh, let's put the needle down on cut number four on side one. We're in the midst of a run of three covers here after after kicking off with a couple of Beatles originals. So we had Anna, uh, which is a cover written by Arthur Alexander, followed by Chains, uh, which is a cover version written by the incredible songwriting team of Goffin King. Uh, Jerry Goffin and Carol King. Chains, my baby's got me locked up in chains, and they ain't the kind that you can see. Whoa, these chains of love got a hold on me. 
song they recorded during an evening session, which was nailed in four takes. Take one is the one they used. Uh, John Lennon was quoted in 1963 as saying that he wanted Lennon and McCartney to be the Goffin King of England. They did that. And then some. Uh, what say you about chains, Mike? They loved Goffin King, you know. Um, they, they, John used to sing Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow in their cavern days. It was a big favorite of the cavernites, the, their female and male fans there. This, I love this one because it's a three-parter. Uh, it's the classic. Uh, the, they didn't do it all that often where they would sing in block three-part harmony. Paul on top, John in the middle, George on the bottom. And uh, just in tandem, except for George's solos in the B sections, you know. Uh, I just love this. You know, it's of a piece in a way with this boy and Yes It Is, you know, these yes, great tight harmony. Harmonies, yeah. Or Because, you know, is of the same cloth too. Um, there's, a, there's a harmonica overdub in the beginning of this uh, record. And, you know, their first, I think their first three or four singles all had harmonica intros. And it was a sound that George Martin really encouraged because he was all about sonic novelty. So he wanted them to have this uh, brand identity with the harmonica. But Dave Dexter Jr. in at Capital USA hated the harmonica on pop records. And it was a big reason that he didn't accept the Beatles' first four singles for release in the U.S. He rejected them all and this album. What does he know? Well, exactly. And he kept his job. There you go. He kept it. Oh, not only did he keep his job, but at Capital US, he was in charge of deciding how the Beatles albums would be resequenced and released. Well, there's that. There's another show. I mean, if you compare oh, the US man. Beatles releases to the British ones, I mean, they're bathed in way more reverb and the sequencing. Exactly. Yeah, it's a yeah. I'm so I'm so envious of Alec that he got to listen to the UK mixes, whereas I had to listen to these thin reverb bathed on cheap vinyl Canadian pressings. Yeah, you know, it's, I found that odd after, because I did hear them, even a, a little radio and everything, but, um, you know, and I didn't know it was a Cookies uh, release before that or anything, but I, I had... A, um, it wasn't a big hit. No, I don't think so. But we used to sing that one in my band, The Beatles. They laugh every They loved it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the weirdness of, of of them thinking that they, well, that they know their market better for such for a band of, of such who's already doing really great, uh, you know, to, to try and change it. I I don't get that at all. Like I mean, not at all. They're already they've already did all the work themselves. So why would you want to? You should just be taking them to the next level, not changing their heart. So, so, it must have really made them angry as well to be doing that. So the, the Cookies, for those of you, they were Little Eva's backing singers, for those of you not aware of that. Uh, George Harrison gets the vocal. He has a couple of lead vocals on this album. Uh, Do You Want to Know a Secret is the other one. And one other thing, just like to get your comment on this, uh, Ian McDonald uh, wrote a lot about the Beatles, uh, says of the song, the performance is slightly out of tune and low on spontaneity. So he, he seems down on it, which sort of contrasts the view of you two. Why, why do you think he'd make a, a comment like that? It is a little bit draggy, actually. I, I think I have to agree with him. 
No, no, it's not. It doesn't sparkle like some of the other tracks. Now, would one of the reasons be, Mike, because the, the the theory that he throws out? So the Cookies version has three part harmony, and so does the Beatles. But the Beatles had to drop it a key because George Harrison had a bit more of a limited vocal range. Would that have taken some of the sparkle away? No, I don't think in itself uh, changing the range because we're not comparing it to the Cookies anyway. I think we're, also we're listening to it on its own merits. Yeah, it it. it he may have been though comparing it and i think also too i think the beatles weakest and and not just them but most british uh, bands at the time were weak on doing these walking shuffles mm-hmm. um you know another song when they do kansas city and stuff you know it sort of kind of makes me cringe a little bit yeah and this this song falls into the same kind of groove i don't think their singing was bad at all i think it was pretty good mm-hmm. yeah i just think it's not really what musicians were good at uh, at that time in well anywhere in europe for because over you know over here they you know in north america you know musicians learn to swing pretty fast like early on in their mm-hmm. you know their learning curve uh, so th- th- we go on to the th- the last of the three cover versions in a row so that that they've rattled off and this one is called boys cut five on side one third cover in a row they nailed this in one take uh, they did it just after anna just before chains during the evening session ringo sings a song that was originally written by luther dixon and west farrell for the shirelles uh, and it was a, a b-side to will you love me tomorrow I- perfect Ringo song, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think it captures Ringo, early Ringo, so well, and it just shows how perfect he was for the Beatles, that he was able to, to, he had been in the Beatles for about six months when they recorded this, and he just absolutely fits with the guys. He is a full equal member you know and and they're all just having a great time together that's that's a first take that we're listening to of boys and uh you know they i looked at the beatles recording sessions the lewis and book do you guys have that one oh yes that's uh, i mean that's got to be the this one yeah that's got to be the the bible of uh, beatles books until lewis's whole trilogy comes out Totally. So this is the first, this is when I discovered the force of nature that is Mark Lewis and uh, for Beatles stuff. You know, they did up to, you know, 12, 13 takes for other songs at this less than 10 hour session, including a song that didn't even get on the album, Hold Me Tight, 13 takes for that one. That's Paul being the taskmaster. We later see that with Obla Di Obla Da and uh, Maxwell Silver Hammer doing like 100 takes of these kind of turkeys. Mm-hmm. But then, what, mm-hmm. but what's interesting, though, is that they, uh, with, with the covers, like you mentioned, this was a, a one-take wonder, like bang. When they got to the end of the night and they had to, time was running out and they had to get it done. I'll talk more about that later. But they were able to take these songs from their stage act and just rip them out in one take. Yeah. Well, they were probably on Preludin at the time too. <laughs> probably. I'm serious. I'm serious. Yeah. Yeah. Especially John. 
Yeah, well, and, and they were, yeah, Alec, you mentioned John's voice uh, in one of the tracks a little bit earlier. He had a, an awful cold, just a terrible cold, and was was gulping throat lozenges and warm milk through the whole session. And you can hear it, right. definitely hear it on some of the cuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that can add character. I mean, that, you know, and also like road burn, you know, you can, you can, uh, I think it's kind of important too that at times when, when uh, musicians or singers, you know, should sing in what is their normal state of their voice, you know, because you take a lot of time off, you get all of this sort of falsetto and range and stuff like that. And then when you go to to sing uh, on, you know, live, it, it, your voice can change, right? So you get guys like Howell Wolf and Dr. John and that there, they're all down here. And it was like, because their voice is... Uh, that's where their voice naturally is from working so much, right? So, and in in John's case, uh, if he's got a cold, it probably just added more to that gravelly sort of sound that he seemed to have all the time when he was younger. I mean, whatever he's doing on Twist and Show to me is like what, uh, that sounds like he's tearing his vocal cords up, but it, it sounds great. Well, we'll, so. we'll get to that. I mean, that's that's one. Yes, of, we will. One of the great. <laughs> Uh, vocal performances uh, of all time. Ringo, this is a he sang this with the Rory Storm and the Hurricanes as well before with the Beatles. Yeah. So he knew the Ringo's tune. star time. Uh, Mike, how about the guitar solo? You, I, I think you you mentioned Harrison's influence from uh, Chet Aikens beforehand. Uh, do you hear that here? Uh, you know, I need to be reminded. Hold on a second. I'm just going to play the guitar. Jump to the guitar solo. Okay. Can you play that, Mike? Uh, I have played it because I've done the Beatles whole catalog note for note on stage. He did it in one day, didn't you? Yeah. Sort of yeah. show at the Diamond or something like that, or at Phoenix? the Phoenix. Yeah, at the yeah. Phoenix. We I did a, a note, more or less note for note Beatles show, doing every one of the two hundred and thirteen songs. So, what makes it a Chet Aikens guitar solo? Oh, he's using hybrid picking. So he's playing uh, uh, picking fingers. You can hear that there. That was a big Chet Atkins thing. Uh, well, Chet would use a thumb, uh, thumb pick, but there um, George has got a th- flat pick and he's picking with his fingers as well. But what I love about that solo is how minimal it is. It's, you know, for George at this time, he would tend to fill space. But not on this one. It's very distinct phrases, you know. And very syncopated, very hip, you know. It's super I think that's, basic. I think it's it's super basic, but and he probably worked it out, you know, over a long time because that was George in those those days. He would compose a guitar solo. He wouldn't improvise. He couldn't jam mm. at this time. It, well, even at the end, uh, he worked tirelessly famously on the solo for something uh yeah it wasn't just he he came in and he tried it and he tried it and uh, to your point he he wasn't a guy who maybe like you're a guitar player but i mean somebody like eric clapton or the great uh jeff healy who both of you played with yeah you get the impression they could just kind of feel a solo 
Yeah, like um, you even t- t- I've played that uh, something guitar solo. If you play it, it's it's not like you play the solo for um, uh, while my guitar gently weeps. It's all very much in a position. He gets in a position and then he sort of moves between a couple of positions. But something can't be played that way. It's all it's all uh, little ideas stitched together, and that's very different from the way that somebody like Eric Clapton conceives a solo because he's thinking from thought to thought. Whereas, whereas George is constructing a solo phrase by phrase, and it's a completely different way of um, the solo. That's why that solo is so distinctive and so melodic, because there's yeah. no there's no jamming in it, none. There's no yeah. riffing. There's no improvising. It's all worked out. But it also has a very bluesy tone to it as well. Abs- like oh, they really figured out how to get good. Tone. By the time they did Abbey Road, they really knew how to get super warm guitar sounds in the yeah. studio, and the engine engineers would come out and they would set the uh, controls and then George Martin and whoever the guitar player was, was would kind of get them to change it but they would be the ones actually turning it up to that level where it's just just that little bit of distortion like you get in the um, you yeah, know the you, something solo you know it's beautiful you sound thing and back it off a bit compression you know it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing that solo uh, but that's another album <laughs> we'll get back to this one in the second last cut on side number one Lennon McCartney original after three straight covers ask me why and it's the first yeah. cut we hear in the record that was not recorded during that February 11th session uh, McCartney says it was John's original idea we both sat down and wrote it together just did a job on it it was mostly John's I love you Cause you tell me things I want to know It's a, it's a song, it's one of my favorite Beatles songs, actually. You know, it just goes to show you, right? There's something for everybody in the Beatles. You don't, all the people don't have to like the same things. And, you know, I just think this is such a beautifully crafted, heartfelt song from John and, um, and you know, the intro he cribbed from a Miracles record. Did you called What's So Good About Goodbye? Yes, indeed. The, 1961 yeah, dum, hit. Yeah. Dum, da, yeah. Dum, bum. Um, yeah, I just, anyway, I just love, I love this song. And I just, you know, the chords, it's so sophisticated, you know, it's not that sort of bonehead three chord thing. It's got like five, six chords in it. Come on. Yeah, yeah that's different. We sang that one on the Beatles too. But yeah. this, uh, the, the I, 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 I yeah. part was a, yeah. it was a hooky thing. It was like, yeah. Now that I think it was probably a little bit more Mexican or something. But yeah, it I, had a yodeling kind of part I, in it as well. Like, Doo! right? That, that's like he was using the different parts of his voice as well. Mm-hmm. Just like Please Please Me. I think it's of a piece with Please Please Me. And I think it was written around the same time. It, yeah. it, well, I am now going to revisit it, Mike, on uh, on the, the, the strength of uh, of your recommendation. But it, it's, uh, it, there is the Smokey Robinson inspiration, that opening guitar line from uh, What's So Good About Goodbye. Uh, and... Th- just to, to give you an idea of the, the pace that they, they had to go at, it was originally a B-side, knocked off after the tea break, taken after they'd recorded the A-side, which we're coming to next, which was Please Please Me. So that was on November 26 and 62. And just, they had to get it done. This was an unknown band. They were on a tight schedule. And there's a guitar fluff at a minute 26 into this and there was no inclination to fix little mistakes for for groups nobody'd heard of who were doing b-sides uh, just kind of uh, it, it's interesting that 
so that's what they were then. It, you you but, fast forward a few years and they would have worked hours on it. But they they weren't completely unknown yet because this is the session for, this se- second session is for the Please Please Me single. And they already had a top 20 yeah, and and their their album had been scheduled. So George Martin clearly had it, saw a future for the Beatles by this point. But I think yeah, they they left the mistakes in because I think because they didn't think anyone one would notice because mm-hmm. they're they're thinking of their teenage audience and they're thinking nobody's going to ever go over these records with a fine tooth comb. Let's just get it done. Yeah. As let's we, get a let's get a good vocal performance and a good rhythm and and don't worry about the little stuff. Yeah, and and you know what? That's a great point because uh, how could they have possibly known in their wildest dreams that uh, there'd be shows like this going through track by track, <laughs> note by note. Uh, uh, Mike, you you famously you played in a for a number of years in a in a group that did uh, what was it note for note or note perfect? Yeah. You go out and yeah. and recreate theoretically. Yeah, <laughs> well, theoretically, <laughs> there's a big there's a big gulf between perfection and idea. Well, I mean, the Beatles wouldn't have been able to do it themselves either. So, I mean, and they wouldn't have wanted to. Yeah, yeah. they're just photographs of a point in time. So yep. these recordings, yep. so, you yep. know. Uh, we, were, we were just feasting on the corpse of rock and roll, boys. Yes. <laughs> Why not? You so, got to make some money. So, yeah. to keep going. Last, so. last cut on side one, and they did make some money off of this one, written by John <laughs> Lennon. Please, please me. Uh, yeah. And Lennon says, my song completely. It was my attempt at writing a Roy Orbison song, would you believe? Wrote it in the bedroom of my house at Menlove Avenue, which was my auntie's place. I remember the day... <clears throat> that I sat there and wrote it. And uh, the line, where did he get? Uh, he heard Roy Orbison doing Only the Lonely, and that's where the line came from. And also I was intrigued by the words of Please Lend Me Your Little Ears to My Please, a Bing Crosby song. And was always intrigued by the double use of the word please. So it was a combination of Bing Crosby and Roy Orbison. What a track. Last night I said these words to my This one's a real standout for me, and no wonder they called the album that. And uh, also that harmonica thing again, right? It's like, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of harmonica going on in pop music over there. And it was like, uh, you even started seeing ads in the magazine, or comic book magazines, like, you know, play play harmonica like John Lennon and stuff. Like, they, you know, they, it, it really raised a lot of attention on what that attention to what that instrument was and uh, he had a, a kind of a cool style of playing it i love that track it's just uh, i think it's one of the ultimate pop songs yeah you mentioned that that song please uh the bing crosby song uh have you ever heard it no i have not yeah, it's it's great. There's a there's a really good clip on uh, YouTube of Crosby singing it in a movie live with a guitarist named Eddie Lang, and it's um, from a movie called The Big Broadcast that came out in 1932, and I think Julia. Uh, John's mother must have seen this film a lot of times because she was an usherette, and she sang it to John. 
And I used to do this song in a band, so I know the beginning. It's like, please lend your little ear to my please. Lend a ray of cheer to my please. Tell me that you love me too. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Fraser Daily rides again. Please. I like it. Yeah. We should be doing that one. Yeah, we should. Next time. Well, yeah. our Bing set. Yeah, get, get, get it back into the act when you get the act going again, which, which can't be yeah. soon enough. And, you know, a lot of people interpret the lyric of this song as a plea for oral sex. And I love Lewison's line about that. He says, it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that. Well, and apparently that was what the, the American record company thought. That, that, that it was that, that it oh, was those guys again yeah that it was it, it was a it was a plea it was a plea for fellatio uh is what they thought <laughs> i never thought of that when i was seven years old i didn't even know what that was yeah, when you were 17 <laughs> i bet you did <laughs> well i didn't but uh you know just the uh it, it wasn't taken us out i think it's in the ears of the beholder right well, yeah and again, and again george Martin, I, it never occurred to me either like when i was a kid listening it never yeah. occurred to me and then i read it somewhere and then it, seemingly it was everybody thought that yeah they're trying to ruin it for you <laughs> it's innu innuendo it's like leave me alone i enjoy the song <laughs> well, george martin again though uh george martin says at that stage so when they were rehearsing it uh Please Please Me was a very dreary song. It was like a Roy Orbison number, very slow, bluesy vocals. It was obvious to me that it badly needed pepping up. I told them to bring it in next time, and we'd have another go at it. So they did. They came in. Martin said, can you change the tempo? Uh, and apparently the Beatles said, what's that? And he, he said, make it faster. And Martin went down and showed them, I guess I would assume on the piano, what a quicker tempo would be. And according to Paul McCartney... He said, we thought, oh, that's all right. Actually, we were a bit embarrassed that he had found the better tempo than we had. But they did it that way. And then famously, Martin, with the uh, congratulations, you've just recorded your first number one. Yeah. I'm highly dubious about that the Beatles didn't know what tempo was. <laughs> these, these guys grew up listening to the BBC. It's yeah. it's a it's a common term, and these you know these guys they were they weren't musically trained, but something like that I I'd never saw that in the I just read the extended Lewison book, so I'm steeped in this period, and he never mentions it. I it's I would be who says that uh, it's Paul, is it Jeff Emmerich? No, it's Paul McCartney says it in the Beatles anthology. Really? Yeah, the, the exact oh, the, the the exact quote wow. from the anthology is we sang it and George Martin said, "Can we change the tempo?" We said, "What's that?" He said, "Make it a bit faster. Let me try it." And he did. We thought, wow. "Oh, that's all right." Yes. Actually, we were a bit embarrassed that he had found the better tempo than we had. End quote. And then he uses the word tempo in a sentence. Like, I don't always believe Paul. I'll just say you know, I know he's, he was there. I wasn't there, but it just, it, it's a bit, that anecdote is a bit suspect to me. I'll just say, I have a lot of suspicions actually about a lot of the accepted beetle, beetle lore. And, yeah. And, well, it, it's bound to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, it, it, and but, but this was the song that launched them. It's, it's, it cemented a publishing deal. Uh, and then the single came out on January the 11th and the 13th, they went on a big show over there, which you might remember, Alec, uh, thank your lucky stars. 
That was a big, yes. a big variety. So then they, that runs on the 19th. They closed the first half of the show miming Please Please Me, which was just out. And then on the strength of that TV appearance and the single, all of a sudden they're booked onto several tours, radio TV appearances, and away they went. This was the song mm-hmm. that launched them. I think, I mean, I think fair to say, more so than Love Me Do. Yeah, I think, I think Love Me Do... Um, it didn't. It didn't make them. It. It wasn't Beatlemania. It was with "Please Please Me" that it's Beatlemania. Yeah, yeah I agree with yeah, that. Yeah. So, well, though, though, it put them on the map for sure. No, Love no question. Do. Well, and and that's what we're coming to next. Over, we flip the uh, flip the vinyl over onto side two and cut one is "Love Me Do," which was released as the Beatles' first single in the UK. Came out in October of '62. Went to number 17. Came out in the U.S. a couple of years later and, and was number one. Uh, but I mean, this song. I, I think you, to put it in context, you have to look at what else was around at the time. I mean, this would have sounded very different than other songs that were in the British charts. Love, love me do. You know I love you. Cliff Richards and the Shadows too, which were was earlier. Yeah. I mean, that, all of that kind of music was was just you know, you know the pop the pop artists were Tommy Steele and people like that. Like they, they, these guys came along. It was a breath of fresh air because mm-hmm. uh, you know the Shadows were really big. Like the Shadows were massive, and they they still are pretty popular there, but uh, not not anywhere near the level of what the Beatles did. The impact, and they were also appealing to a younger group of people which really made the difference i think yeah and they were a they were a group they weren't a singer or a bunch of backing musicians it was all integrated you get that sense on the record it doesn't sound like a singer with backing it sounds like an integrated group they it's a very bluesy song for the time and you know rhythm rhythm and blues was just beginning to get popular in in england on with youth Mm -hmm. in 62 and so they are grabbing onto a trend they're using the harmonica i mean it's it's a very commercial record but distinctive and unusual at the same time but i think it was driven not not so much by its its merits though but i think it was driven by the beatles live following yeah definitely and the that, skiffle thing had a lot to do with some. Uh, I mean, they okay. still had part of that there. They started as a they started as a skiffle band, but this yeah. this is almost like a skiffle record. It's acoustic. It's very you know yeah. it's quiet. It's like ticky ticky. It's not a full out rock and roll uh, yeah. record. It's very restrained. Slightly better chording and melodies, though. I think they took it to another level. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and they've got that dis- they've got that discipline too in what they're doing. Yeah. Like it's so, I don't know. They sound like. Um, they sound like session musicians as far as their consistency yeah. in the studio already. Like that's what I really, I just hear. And then you listen to let it be, you know um, what, seven years later and it's, and it's all fallen apart. You know, all of that tightness and professionalism and you know, they, they're, they're a terrible band in 69, at least on those let it be rehearsals Mm -hmm. you know great writers still great singers but as far as grooving together as a band they never were as this good again i think actually yeah but wasn't that record together by by uh 
what's his name, the little guy there? Uh, <laughs> Phil, Phil Spector. Spector. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, well, and, well, he just he just glopped a bunch of crap onto it. He didn't. He what he he was working with live off the floor Beatles recordings, and then he yeah. was putting strings and choirs on top of it. But it wasn't a piece together record. It was yeah. an overdubbed record. Right, but but I mean, a lot of overdubbing was being done on Beatles records anyway. After this, please, please me. Absolutely, record. but but this was that was a the Phil Spector thing on Let It Be is a whole other thing. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. The it Ellen, was done against Paul's wishes, and it was Alan Klein, and ugh. that's a whole that, that's a whole wrong, show. Right? That's a whole show right there. <laughs> that's a whole show. That, that Sorry, is, guys. That, that is no. The vibe always does get on the record, and if, you're, if people aren't getting along as well as what they usually, yeah. do, mm. but they also couldn't play together energy, anymore. Right? Yeah, they also had lost that tightness, though. They, they, yeah. Three versions of Love Me Do uh, kicking around, three different occasions, three different drummers. So they came in for their test on June 6th, 1962, with Pete Best on the drums. Uh, they they thought that had disappeared forever, but it's on Anthology 1. You can hear the version with Pete Best. First proper session was 4 of September, 62. Uh, Best had been replaced by Ringo Starr. But uh, Martin didn't know about that, and he had a session guy named uh, named Andy White who was around, and the Beatles returned to the studio to make a proper recording on September 11th. That's the Andy White version. Stars relegated to playing a tambourine. Uh, and the easiest way to distinguish between the two, because they both got released, on the 4 of September version, there's no tambourine. So that, that's the one that Ringo's playing on. Uh, the one with the tambourine, Andy White is playing the drums, and Ringo is there as, as sort of a side guy, is, is how it ended up. Uh, and you mentioned the harmonica, Mike, a chromatic harmonica. With the, so I guess that's one with a little slide on it as opposed to the, the one-key diatonic harmonica. Do either of yeah, because the bridge is in a, in a different key. Do, do you guys play, either of you, play the harmonica? I don't. I did when I was a kid. I used to carry one around me all the time, but uh, I just sort of lost interest in it. Yep. Um, I've tried over the years, but... It's similar to the sound that Stevie Wonder would play, you know, that kind of... Yeah, for sure. Semitone, less bending. Order. A bluesy feel to this song with the harmonica, and and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask both of you guys having you here uh, because you you played with one of the great blues guitarists that's uh, of his era, and certainly to ever come out of Canada, the late Jeff Healy. Now, tell me about that. What was what was it like being around him, Alec? Uh, you produced him and played with him, Mike. You played with him. You sang with him. Um, tell me a, a little bit about the guy. Well, I can tell you that. When Mike and I, just so you understand how close we were, um, the uh, when Mike and I first got together to play at the Intersteer on the Wednesday nights, uh, it was during the time when Jeff was going through the chemo and all that, and I thought, man, better, better get a gig in town because he doesn't look like he's going to be working much for the next little while. So uh, we got we got together, and I told Jeff. Uh, yeah, Mike and I have put together a, a, you know a duo here, and uh, he goes, oh great. My uh, little brother's playing with my big brother, and I thought I thought it was a really nice thing for him to say that my, Mike, obviously being the little, the younger brother, but um, he he, uh, he had a a sort of a incredible memory for things, so he was always good to get into sessions with him. And my end of it with the producing and the recording and that was that I did all of his most of his jazz band stuff, the Jazz Wizards. And then I ended up doing a couple of records, uh, the last two records that he made. 
uh, Mess of Blues and uh, and uh, a live one called uh, Songs from the World. Uh, the live experience to him was really, really important. So it made for good. Like every gig was fun. Like we never had a bad night in all the years that I played with him. Not one. Because it, he was in his element when he was playing live and he was around other musicians, you know, ones that he, you know, his friends, basically. So that's how I'd sum Jeff up. Mike? I spent a lot of time with Jeff because I would often drive him to gigs. I didn't play with him nearly as much as Alec did. I probably played with him a total of 20 times between the jazz band and the, and the blues band. Different things, fill-ins and that sort of thing. But we spent a lot of time together working on his record collection. catalog. I helped him catalog it. He, he commemorated dance bands and jazz bands of the 1920s in his record collection in a way that's just breathtaking. But he was, as a musician, he was the most extravagantly talented person I've ever known. Like, he was just, he was so far above everybody as a guitarist, but just as a musician. And Alec, you'll, you'll attest to this, like, his, his heaviness was, was bottomless. Yeah. You know? Like when he would go in to see the light and he'd do his, the band would stop and he would do his cadenza. Like that's, I've never heard guitar playing like that. And I was on stage with it at jet engine volume. Yeah, it was definitely loud. <laughs> he was blowing up amplifiers all through Europe like they just kept bringing them out. Only got one left, so we better uh, get another one. <laughs> he was notorious because he used that octave divider on that oh my last God. section Every, of See the Light. and Everything and on 10. Closing, you know? I always really liked playing uh, guitar genres with him, too. He had a, a good take on that, that, that singing of that. It was different. And all the Beatles. How he, how did he play the guitar solo? Did he did he try to do a did he try to play it like Clapton or did he do his own version? He would of it? His own. things in sometimes just just to get a rise out of everybody. Like it, I loved it when he did Neil Young. Like it, <laughs> sound exactly like Neil Young. Just just and be smiling from ear to ear at the time because he he just knew how to do it. I can remember being in. Switzerland with him and he came up to my room and we're, we're uh, in the hotel room and we're listening to all this old country western music on this cassette deck that I had I brought on the road and he picked up my guitar uh, Wichita Lineman came on and he picked it up and he played the solo like uh, it was just like exactly uh, he does. Uh, he does. He did it beautifully. Like his photographic memory was great, and and that a lot of that came from the, the blind school that he went to. Uh, he told me that all the kids used to sit around and try and outdo each other by listening to Chum AM and learning every single song that was on there, um, and and trying to outdo each other. So I mean, that's gonna that's gonna get you up to the top of your game, you know, and the memory of the land anyway for music. Yeah. Let's jump back into Please Please Me and uh, Side 2 and Cut 2. P.S. I Love You. As I write this letter, send my love to you. Remember that I'll always be in love with you. Meant to be a B-side. 
uh, for Love Me Do. Uh, Andy White plays the drums. Ringo was on maracas for this. <clears throat> uh, George Martin wasn't even in the producer's chair. It's uh, It was a guy named Ron Richards uh, as well mm-hmm. for Love Me Do. Big fave of the crowds, apparently, during their sets at the Cavern. Uh, now, I was going to say this isn't one that really I have any great memories of. I, I don't think about it much. But the last time I did that, Mike, you completely disagreed. So... I'm just I'm going to zip it here and let you let you talk. Let the musician talk about the music. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry Paul, I'm very opinionated about the Beatles. <laughs> well, what 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 about PS I love you? I love PS I love you. I it's it's one of my favorite songs to sing actually. I love calling it with Alec. Um I'm always calling it and Ooh. I love how it starts on the starts hot right straight in on the vocal as i write this letter right on the four chord you know to a sharp chord diminish to you yeah shen my love we throw shen my love to you sometimes (laughs) no it's and you know to me that this song is a real crickets influence uh lennon lennon says that it was paul trying to write soldier boy like the shirelles do you hear do you hear that at all you know i don't i don't know I got to hear Soldier Boy. Yeah, I'm not seeing that. But uh, sometimes when you go and try and do something, you end up with something else. So, you know, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, you get what you need. <laughs> Just lyric. listening for, for a moment. Oh, okay. Yeah, like, uh, I'll be true. Yeah, right. Because of the theme of writing a letter. That's right. Lewison talks about that in tune. The, the lyric, yeah. Yeah, that, so it's got a similarity in the lyric. Not too much musical similarity to me. Like right. a Soldier Boy is pretty like a slow swing. It's almost like a Ray Price shuffle mm-hmm. to my ear. And, uh, you know, P.S. I Love You goes along at a pretty good clip. Mm-hmm. But they, they talked about uh, having this as the A side of the single with... Um, but Ron Richards nixed it because he said there's already a song called P.S. I Love You and it'll confuse people. Yes. And now, hey, picking in hindsight, what she thinks a better song, P.S. I Love You or Love Me Do, if you're, if you're picking? I would pick P.S. I Love You as the, as the A side. Absolutely. Put Paul uh, right forward with that, with the cow eyes, you know? <laughs> Go straight in the main line. <laughs> Alec? <laughs> the thing with uh, Love Me Do that I thought was a real hook in it was that that uh, after the harmonica line, the, the band goes, Womp, love, love me. Oh, yeah. So in a way, it was kind of like this thing. It had a hook. So I, I still like Love Me Do. I like both of them, you know. I guess it's not a sport. You know, like both. So. Oh, hey, nothing wrong. I, I believe, Mike, if I'm recalling you correctly, uh, you and I were having a conversation one time after you'd played a set at uh, at Castro's Lounge in Toronto, and we were talking about <clears throat> great Canadian music writers. And I said, "Oh, you know, I, I think I said something about Joni Mitchell and uh, how much I admired her work." And you said, "You know, those lists are all just a social construct." <laughs> 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 Did I say that? That's what you said. I would never, I would never say anything that pretentious, Paul. I, <laughs> I, I'm doubting your story. It would, it was said in the nicest possible way. Uh, <laughs> as, 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 I think you were on the way to get a beer. <laughs> so those lists are all. That's just my just, standard they, line. They're all. He's just on his 15 minute break, you know. He's all and, high from and, that. And, that and, and off you went. So, so we go from uh, a song that maybe was influ- 
influenced, uh, written by Paul McCartney, maybe influenced a little bit by the Shirelles with the theme to one that was actually a hit for the Shirelles. Uh, track three, Baby, It's You. And this was the last song that they <laughs> recorded before they did Twist and Shout. And Baby, It's mm-hmm. You was a hit for the Shirelles, written by Burt Bacharach, Hal David, and Barney Williams. Uh, and uh, I don't know. To me, maybe it's just because I know that. But you, you can hear them getting tired. Cause baby, it's you. Baby, it's you. Don't leave me all alone. Yeah, for sure. But it's got, you know, the song has, especially Lennon's vocal, has this languid quality that I think, you know, the prellies are wearing off. And he's, you know, this song I associate since reading the extended version of Tune In. Have you read that yet, Paul? I am uh, working my way through it, and I know that oh. you I know that you have, and I loved your tip about read all the footnotes. Yes. And, yeah. Yes. But he talks about uh, a fan, a cavernite, and, you know, one of the sweetest parts of that book is how lovingly he commemorates the first Beatles fans in Liverpool, the Cavernites, mostly these girls, 14, 15, who idolized the Beatles, would come to every lunchtime, every session. And this one Cavernite named Lindy Ness, who became friends with John, and she was 14, 15 at the time. And he was, a, according to her account he was a complete gentleman and i believe her and she talks about how in the cavern when they would do baby it's you he would look at her and it was a kind of their song and she because it was her favorite you know they would always these girls would call the beatles at home and request songs you know do baby it's you for lindy won't you paul or whatever (laughs) that's pretty good that 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 is so i always think of lindy ness you know one of the original cavernites with this song and i imagine john singing it to her it differs from the shirelles version in that it repeats the second verse instead of the first verse mm-hmm. uh and then the shirelles conclude with a line about sitting at home and crying and the beatles conclusion is more upbeat john lennon singing that he'll carry on loving no matter what so a little bit of a little bit of a, a tweak there you know I, with this um this is another one of those songs that I never heard the originals of. Like I got introduced to the originals through the Beatles. Um, you know, I never heard the Isley Brothers doing uh, Twist and Shout and all of that. Like it, I heard them from the Beatles first, so it took me in a on a journey to eventually hear the originals, and I thought, wow, those are pretty good too. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, th- this one here, I just thought I wasn't even paying attention as a at seven years old to at, at who was writing what it wasn't i didn't read liner notes on records either then you know? this is why i'm way behind you two guys now mike unless you know differently this is the only album i know of that has songs on it by goff and king Bacharach and david and lennon and mccartney so i mean three of the great pop writing duos yeah, ever right Right. Yeah. No, I'd never thought about that, but yeah, it, it does. Well, they had good taste in songs. And That's partly why their songs are so good. They liked good songs and they analyzed them and took them apart and tried to figure out what made them work. And, and so, you know, garbage in, garbage out. They were listening to the best American rock and roll and pop records that were coming out at the time. These were music connoisseurs, these guys. Mm-hmm. 
so then we go to another Lennon and McCartney song, second one that they recorded during the afternoon session on on the big day, uh, between a couple of attempts of A Taste of Honey. George Harrison sings, Do You Want to Know a Secret? And John Lennon said in 1980 that <clears throat> he gave Do You Want to Know a Secret to Harrison to sing because, quote, it only had three notes and he wasn't the best singer in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Always blunt. Harsh, harsh. Yeah. yeah. Always blunt. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, closer. Yeah, and this song, Do You Want to Know a Secret? It's such an interesting song. It's got that minor key, um, free tempo introduction. You'll never know how much I really love you. Which was, um, John and Paul loved those. That was kind of an old-fashioned thing from Tin Pan Alley pop songs, right? Because so many of these songs were show tunes. They'd have a little slow, free-time introduction. And then the song proper comes in, in tempo. And um, so they, a few of these songs, they would do this. They would, uh, it's like uh, also, um, If I Fell has a, in, you know, it has that intro that never appears again in the song. It's a very uh, pre-rock and roll songwriting approach. Here, there, and everywhere. Exactly. A perfect example of another, of another one of those. Yeah, so They, they love and, that. And again, this is John with the chords, very similar of a piece in E um, to Ask Me Why, I would say. Like, I would I would group these two together musically. I'm not sure what Ian McDonald says you, you get, about it. Um, the, the thing that I did jot down, uh, three descending major sevenths in the verse, yeah. uh, so echoes of McCartney's arrangement of Till There Was You. Oh, yeah, minor seventh chords, yeah. There's a, it's like uh, this. Right. And um, yeah, it's just the neat to me, like neatly constructed song. And uh, and, you know, the lyric inspiration from Snow White. So that the uh, line, do you want to know a secret uh, comes from Snow White and Seven Dwarves. I'm I'm wishing. Do you want to know a secret? Uh, Promise not to tell. We are standing by a wishing well. So Snow White, another 1930s movie that Julia would have seen when she was an usherette and she sang to John when he was a child. That is a great, that is a great little bit. That is, yeah. that is a great little piece of trivia. Uh, is that Lewison? Uh, yeah, it's in Lewison. I, th- I think I saw it earlier somewhere else, but I think it's, I mean, to me, it's, it all ends and begins with Lewison now. He, he, he is the only authority in my mind. Yes. Um, and uh, everybody needs to step up and update their information now because Lewison <laughs> has done the work. So the next cut is a cover version of a song written by Bobby Scott and Rick Marlowe back in 1960. It was for a British play of the same name and then later a pretty successful movie, A Taste of Honey. A taste of honey Tasting much sweeter than Yeah, this was one that uh, Paul picked up from Lenny Welch's vocal recording of this song. This was originally an instrumental 
song, and it was actually for the Broadway version of that British play that it was uh, added. And uh, this is a song that, predictably, John Lennon hated. And apparently, when they would perform it live uh, in the call and response, when Paul would sing, a taste of honey, John would sing, a waste of money. <laughs> uh, why do I completely believe that story? Uh, it, like, it is, it, do you, like, to me, it's, it's a little too syrupy, and I, I don't yeah. know that it fits on the record, but what, what say you? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, look, this is Paul, the, it's that tendency of Paul to, to go into a little bit of um, easy listening territory. And um, the, the, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a bit sappy, it's a bit syrupy. It's the only song on the album where Paul is uh, double tracked, where any of them double tracks their vocals, which is something that they would do a lot in future years. So in a way, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a signal of a lot of what's to come, you know, a little, a little bit of an omen of that. But also there's another interesting thing about this song, and that is that it changes time signatures halfway through from, you know, most of the song is in 3-4 time, waltz time, and then it goes into 4-4 time for the bridge, I Will Return. And that's on the original. And that is something that the Beatles would would return to, those changing time signatures. Ironically, in John Lennon's songs, like She Said, She Said, and Happiness is a Warm Gun, they use the same technique where they where actually in She Said, they go from 4-4 to 3-4 in the bridge and then back and uh it's the same thing um uh in happiness is a warm gun yeah most of the song is in four four and then they switch into three four for a section in maybe, return maybe they were just sort of stretching their musical muscles they just come back uh from lunch and it was the first song they started working yeah. on uh, on that afternoon session of february the 11th did five takes and then mccartney superimposed his double track vocal onto that take took a couple of takes to do that so it was take seven is the one you hear and as you mentioned mike the only double tracked vocal on the record i did want to ask you one thing so as it comes into being a, a professional musician, which you are, um, you mentioned John Lennon didn't like the song, but he, so he's up there doing it. What is it? What kind of discipline does it take, or is it maybe not even an issue when you have to play a song as part of a band that you don't like? How do you approach that? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, everybody's been in that position, and how they deal with it is dependent on their personality. So John Lennon would deal with it by acting out with childish rewrites. And he would say these, you know, he'd pull the faces behind Paul as he would be trying to sing. And, you know, there's a great passage in Mark Lewison's Tune In, and I really hammer on this book, but there's a great passage about some other thing that John would do behind Paul when Paul was trying to sing a serious romantic song and John is sort of capering behind him. And Lewison really nails the dynamic between these guys that, first of all, Paul would not let anybody else get away with what John does behind him on stage. And John knows that. And he doesn't go too far, but he goes just far enough. He's trying to make Paul laugh. And um, 
it's it's part of their dynamic, right? That that John takes the piss and Paul is the earnest romantic guy, right? It's part of the whole mix, the irresistible mix of these guys. But as far as, you know, um, there's all kinds of passive aggressive ways that I've dealt with having <laughs> <laughs> to play a song I don't want to play, you know, um, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll, um, I, I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's interesting because it, there are situations that come up where there's something I don't feel like playing and, and, uh, you know, I try to be a good sport most of the time, you know, uh, but uh, occasionally, you know, you'll just drop a chord or something like that just to make it <laughs> just so that the next time they're they're like, uh, let's not do that song. All right. So we're getting <laughs> close to the end here. But I love this song, the penultimate track on the record. I love it. Um, and I hope you do, too, because we're on different pages so far, Mike. I've, I'm, I'm over two. And then we're gonna, I don't like that song. Oh, I love it. Uh, Lennon and McCartney song. There's a place. The first oh. song that they tackled to start the session on February 11th, composed by McCartney uh, or at uh, Frothland Road, uh, Part of uh, the group's stage repertoire back in '63, major seventh harmonica intro. Like I just, mm. I, I think to me the Beatles' magic that separated them from the pack at the time in terms of songwriting. It's a hundred. It's it's one minute fifty one seconds of magic. That's my take. I hope you agree. I, I completely agree. I hey. love it. <laughs> Yeah, I also think it's the first cosmic Beatles song because he says, There's a place that I go, you know, when I feel blue. It's my mind. It's the first Beatles song that is about mind exploration. Right. I never thought of that back then, but I'm going to listen to it differently now. Ooh, cosmic. I, uh, I love this one. But it was too advanced for me, guitar wise. Uh, when I was younger, uh, that was one of the reasons why I guess I didn't really uh, play it much because it had a, a bunch more chords in it. And yeah, it's got a three chord in it and a six chord and yeah, some chromatic passing chords. I wasn't there yet. <laughs> <laughs> but but what? But again, you look at the UK charts at the time when they're doing "There's a Place" and the 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 song structure, Mike, which you could speak to, and and, and Alec, uh, the, the way it sounds. The UK charts are featuring Elvis, "She's Not You," Cliff Richard, "It'll Be Me," Neil Sedaka's "Breaking Up Is Hard to Do." There is nothing, nothing that sounds like this, is there? Absolutely not. It's the first sophisticated rock and roll music. I say that with caution. That. Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly were sophisticated in different ways, but the Beatles are bringing it all together. They're bringing musical sophistication, which I don't think Buddy had as much. Chuck definitely did, and and um, Chuck had lyric. I think it's the first time you've got this kind of craftsmanship um, 
in a self-contained group. You had songwriters like Burt Backrack and so on who were who were creating finely crafted pop songs definitely at this time, Goffin and King, but uh, when they're, they're, they're the first all-in-one package that is doing this. I mean, it's, it's one in a million. Mm-hmm. So we get to the last cut and uh, twist and shout. What a way to close the album. What an amazing way to close the album. Uh, it's a yeah. cover. 1961 song written by Phil Medley and Burt Burns, later credited as Burt Russell. Uh, song was originally titled Shake It Up, Baby. I'll just tell the story. It's a famous story to uh, Michael know it for sure, but famous Beatles story. And then you guys can jump in. So this is from Mark Lewison's Beatles Sessions. This is the story. It was now something like 10 o'clock and the studios were due to close down for the evening. But there was one last song to be recorded. Everybody went down to the Abbey Road Canteen for coffee biscuits and a discussion of what the final song might be. Several were considered and there were friendly arguments that broke out. Norman Smith remembers what happened next. And I quote Norman, someone suggested they do Twist and Shout, the old Isley Brothers number, with John taking the lead vocal. But by this time, all of their throats were tired and sore. It was 12 hours since we'd started working. John's in particular was almost completely gone, so we really had to get it right the first time. The Beatles on the floor and us in the control room had to get it right. John sucked on a couple more zoobs, which was cough medication, had a bit of a gargle with milk, and away we went. What John sang on that first take is what you hear today on the record, arguably the most stunning rock and roll vocal and instrumental performance of all time, two and a half minutes of Lennon shredding his vocal cords to bits, audibly ending with a hefty sigh and a groan of relief. It's really all about the performance, that the song fades into the background, and it's all about the energy, not just of John, and everybody talks about John's raspy voice, and definitely that is a huge part of the appeal, but the energy of the backing vocals and the arrangement with the stacking of the triad, and uh, it's just, I mean, they, they are, they're covering a great, great record, the Isley Brothers shout for sure. And it's not the original version of Shout. There's an earlier version by the top notes and it's terrible and it's produced by Phil Spector of all people. So the de facto original is the is the Isleys, but yeah, it's just Lewison is right, you know, it's it's um it's hard to top it and it's a absolutely timeless perennial favorite. Every generation loves Twist and Shout. It's one of the most classic of Beatles cuts, I think. That's it's one that's not gonna go away. It's definitely classic for sure. It's uh as kids we we loved it. What is that thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, this was a big one in the band I had called the Beatles. We uh <laughs> <laughs> he loves it. Let's get the band back together. <laughs> Shake it. 
out of sync <laughs> this little girl this little, little girl, girl looks so fine looks so fine <laughs> I did it early I did it early hoping it would okay no, 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 never well you hear in a delay or... yeah yeah all right well, well yeah I'm anyway. singing no I'm singing in with you but it's coming to you in a delay I see now you can't jam on zoom that's why I don't use but, zoom but, well Alec the, 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 now if, if you wanted to be really authentic Alec John Lennon was stripped to the waist uh, to to when he when he did he took his shirt off uh, he was exhausted stripped uh, the rest of the band psyched themselves up uh, by treating the studio crew as a live audience but if you want to be authentic you need the guitar but you got to be stripped to the waist so that's that's, that's <laughs> I'll see what I can do <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then they I, did where a, do you read this stuff I mean <laughs> I, I I never knew I've never known that it's been, there there it is my, it's on the actual album see I told uh, you I don't, uh, exactly that's a lovely my, book, my, Mike, uh, Mike is holding up all the books that yes, and I, and I, I nod my head. I have every one of them in, in, in my Beatles library. Um, so, Mike, next time I see you guys perform this, I'll expect the shirtless version just for authenticity. Uh, this one is really hard to do in a duo. It's not impossible, but I've done it. We've done it, and I hate doing it because it's completely exhausting. Because you have to sing the lead and the backup. So you have That's to go, right. shake Take it up, baby. Yeah. Now shake it up, it's baby. baby. Yeah. Twist and shout, twist and twist shout. shout, and by the end of it, you're you're um, on the floor because you haven't breathed for three minutes. <laughs> like many of the Beatles songs, but this one, no matter how many times you listen to this song, it still just stands out as one of the one of the great vocal performances of all time now what would come close if we were to like little help from my friends by joe cocker would that be there mm, not for me personally I'd, I'd put like uh a lot of love in there uh i don't know tina turner river deep mountain high uh, i don't like that record that much i feel like that no i think she did definitely better records like i'd even rather hear her on proud mary than that G one gimme shelter by the stones or great gig in the sky by, by pink floyd but you know those are female yeah. singers but i mean is it well and but mix mix uh vocal performance in gimme shelter is great too but any as well as mary clayton would it would any this this is another social construct list mike but would would any of those be be better than twist and shout lennon i think uh you know, Bohemian Rhapsody in its own way is one of the great vocal performances of Absolutely. all time. Um, I think When a Man Loves a Woman is incredible. I think uh, Change is Going to Come. Yeah. Um, change is Going to Come is fabulous. By, by oh, Sam Cooke. It's never ending. Yeah. Yeah. Those really? will be some of. I look. It's all just favorites, right? Yeah. Like I say, it's a social yeah. construct. As I adjust my ascot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the, the uh, footnote to this quote: Norman Smith, who was the engineer on uh, on the track, he says, "The next morning, we took the tape around all the studio copying rooms, saying to everybody, what the hell do you think of this?' So, the, mm -hmm. so, the, 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 so the guys in the control room were were as blown away as as all we are later. I mean." Yeah, what a song. Yeah, and they all listened to it after they had recorded. So they had recorded for 10 hours, and then the Beatles wanted to listen to the tape. So they all stayed way over time, and they listened through it. 
and then they went home. Can you imagine what the Beatles must have been thinking as they went home, went back to their hotel after that session? I always wonder this about it. Do you think, you know, I always wonder this about Pink Floyd with Dark Side of the Moon or, uh, you know, pick a classic. If, If the guys are sitting there listening to the playback and going, man, we nailed it. This is incredible. Do you think they thought that listening? Uh, it, well, in the case of the Beatles, I think they did because these guys had giant egos and they knew how good they were. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That uh, you, you know, you're when you hear something on playback, which is, I'm doing this all the time and I'm watching uh, all sorts of artists listen to playback for the first time. And if they're excited and bouncing off the walls with excitement at the time, then that is the feeling they should try and keep um, afterwards rather than looking at things under the microscope and finding out what's wrong with things rather than what's right. And uh, and when when you know it's right and you, you're confident that you're right in what you're doing, uh, it, it, that's all you need. And I think these guys had it from the beginning. I heard Sting saying the same thing, kind of like, uh, did you ever think that you were going to be a big star? And he goes, of course I did. Like, you know, it's kind of, And that's not really it's obvious. Say, an, a, an unhealthy ego. Yeah. I think it's just that they knew they were on the right track. You know? Yeah, you can't, you can't listen to somebody like Sting sing, play bass, and the way he looks and not think, oh yeah, that guy's going straight to the top. No, he's still an extremely talented uh, musician. I would, yeah. and, and especially at the age they were at too, because that really does kind of help, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, because they were uh, kids from rock and roll appeal, right? And pop, absolutely, people. they had the right look. Yep. Yeah. So, guys, final, uh, Alec, you can go first. If, uh, final thoughts on when looking back and the, the discussion we've had and thinking about this record. What's what's your sort of takeaway on on "Please Please Me" by the Beatles? Well, it brings back great memories for me, you know. Uh, my little Beatle band in school, and uh, and uh, and just that time period, I have very fond memories of uh, Glasgow, Scotland, and the Beatles were a giant part of that. And uh, and this this album was a huge part of that, and and the albums that came afterwards as well, with "She Loves You" and all that on it. But it, it, to sum it up, I'd say it's 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 pure nostalgia for me you know it's that's what it is and i can now as a as a, a musician appreciate what they were actually doing i mean as a kid i wasn't really as interested in in all the chord structures and the melodies and uh, where everything's from but i can definitely appreciate it a lot more now so it's nostalgia and a and a, a learning experience from one of the greatest bands in the history of rock and roll mike yeah, you know, for me too, the the Beatles, I was kind of discovering them at 11, 12, 13, and it's completely bound up in beginning to be a musician for me. And so these songs have a meaning to me as a listener, but also maybe even more so uh, filtered through my own experience of learning them and playing them and singing them over the years. But also that the, I listen to these records so much that it's just it's just the soundtrack of my brain. Like it's, I know every note, I know every sound. And, um, and then I had to dissect it when I played the music. So it's all tied up. It's actually not nostalgia for me at all because it's, it's always present 
to me. It's just been a part of my life uh, since I was 12 years old and, you know, a big part of my music. It's sort of the whole basis of the whole way I think about music and why I decided to study music, why I decided to play music. It's all, it all goes back to the Beatles and that to me, I look at the, I take a more, I try to take a, like a more objective view of an album like this and look at it in, in its historical context in the Beatles catalog, in the Beatles history and I think it's, I think it's, it's one of the things I love about it is that you catch the Beatles, you, they're beautifully recorded, properly recorded just before they go supernova. So you still have, there's an innocence to it and there is, they're, they're still very tied to this work a day working musician life that they've been living. And shortly, they're not going to have to tour like that anymore. They're going to play bigger places and they're going to have long breaks beginning in 64. And they would they had never had a break. They were just rock soldiers. And so that to me is what I hear on this album. Like the songwriting in some way is naive and it's not everything is what I would think is great. Great cover, I think really interesting covers and so on. But to me, it, it's just, it captures a moment of a great band where you can't say George Martin did this. You can't say Studio Trickery did this. You can't say somebody pieced it together in Pro Tools. They went in and they delivered. And that's what this sound is. This is a band of boundless confidence on the brink of world domination. And with and and they are just a well-oiled machine like they like they had never been and they never would be again so to me it's a huge peak in the beatles and and a really important album we haven't even talked about the effect of this music on the on the way people thought about music or popular music or rock music or, or how a generation of musicians picked up instruments because of this record paul i want to say uh, can we start again and just let me say everything that Mike just said? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I liked his answer much better. Than you. <laughs> you know what? Rating the answers is just a social construct. There's no, there's, exactly. there's no need. For, there's, exactly. Guys, you know what? I, I cannot thank you enough for the generosity of your time. Uh, and uh, on a side note, for the hours of entertainment you've provided to me sitting and listening to you both play live uh but it, it has been an honor to sit here and talk music with a couple of guys who love music and love to talk about music thank you so very much thank you right, thanks a lot paul it's a lot of fun yeah we'll see you when we start back playing again soon oh man let's hope that is uh, much sooner than later uh, hey if you want to check out Fraser Daly's material, go to their website, the Fraser Daly Band. Their website is FraserDaly.com. That is FraserDaly.com. They have three albums up there. You can give them a little preview, purchase, and download. Uh, and don't forget to visit Mike Daly at his website, MikeDalyMusic.com. That is MikeDalyMusic.com, where you can find out all things Mike Daly and peruse some of the outstanding musical history lectures that he has up there, including 
the one about the Beatles, the Beatles and their world. Uh, if you would like to visit the website of this podcast, it is romicast.com, romicast.com. You'll find all of the back catalog there, and you can also make a donation to keep the show commercial free. If you want, click on the donate button at the bottom of the webpage. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. The handle on both is the underscore Romycast. That is the underscore Romycast. That is it for this episode of The Walrus Was Paul. Be sure to keep your eyes peeled for the next one. My guest will be Tyler Stewart, the drummer from the Bare Naked Ladies. That is next time. Until then, I'm Paul Romanek. You take care. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for us? Oh, that's all right. Mr. John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what you wanted to do. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Market fab.